0: As an urban dweller yourself, someone who likes the city, what are you looking for in a successful, livable city?
1: I'm looking for a feeling of collectivity, a feeling of being part of a place, though not tied in like you are in a tiny community. I'm looking for really good public infrastructure. I'm looking for a sense that goes with the collectivity of egalitarianism. And one of the ways we're growing at the moment is in a very polarised way, which I'm sure we shall return to. I mean, one of my slightly wacky criteria I guess is when I look at a city is how would infirm people say over the age of 70 how would they cope in this city what kinds of facilities are available what's the transport like what kind of quality lives could they live? Now, that's quite a good test, I reckon.
0: No, it is a good test. It's, I mean, I look at it from the other end of the generational scale and say, how good is this city for children? Where is there to play? How safe are the streets? Are they full of cars? How is the infrastructure adapted to children and people who have children? And I think, actually, I have to say, uh, on most counts, pretty cities are, are pretty poor on that one.
1: But what we're both raising is that we can only judge the success of cities in the way we think about them by looking at different social groups and the spread of benefits through them, rather than just looking at the economic rating or something like that and how much inward investment they've got and whether the centre is full of glitzy coffee bars. What we're saying is what's it like to live in the very ordinary, the banal, the day-to-day places of the city for everybody.
0: I want to pick up on that issue of egalitarianism and equality and universality, because it seems to me that in the immediate post-war era under the Labour government, 1945 to 1951, we do have a moment in British history where there is a sense of a commitment to egalitarianism, of citizenship, of universality, and so on. And I wonder, Ken, how did that feed through into the thinking of the time about what should be done about British cities, how they should be transformed. How was that actually turned into practical proposals for urban change?
2: Well, if you look back to the 30s and 40s, this is the era when the planner as a person, and particularly allied to being a scientist and technologist, was a kind of hero figure. And the Labour government in 1945 was very committed to planning. The problem is it was a very non reflexive kind of way of thinking about planning, and it was as it were doing good to other people, so new towns were planned but and I remember certainly some of the new towns you know they weren 't going to have, be allowed to have pubs because you know this was thought to be actually detrimental to people 's social and moral well being so Although the planning was very good, it was completely unreflexive, and the needs of women, the changing demographic lifestyles that people were adopting you know, were not taken into account. For example, if you look at the new towns around London, there was no provision for single persons, households. It was assumed that people would stay in their home till they grew up and then in turn would get married. But the notion that there would be a diversity of household types and household architectures just wasn't there in the new town planning.
1: But we should remember, looking back, that one of the things that period, including the the period of the 30s just before the war and then how it got carried on afterwards, one of the things that period proved was that public provision can be excellent. I grew up on a council estate to the south of Manchester, and it's got large gardens. It was a demonstration, and it was meant quite explicitly to be a demonstration, that you could have quality provision for working-class people. And it really was quality. And I think... We've come, you know, how, how these stories get told and get woven. We now have this automatic association of public sector with rather derelict housing and bad provision. It is absolutely not necessarily the case. Can I pick up on, on one other thing? Because another set of associations we often make these days is between planning and the bad. And I think what's important in what Ken said is that planning could also be more reflexive. It could be better. It could be more... Aware of needs from the grassroots, if you like. I often hear people, when I say I work at the Open University, they say, Oh, that's in Milton Keynes, if they've got any idea at all where it is. And I say, Yes. And the very common response is, Oh, Milton Keynes is artificial. And I think this is a real good social science moment. You know, the social science business of saying, Hang on a minute. Because you think, Hang on, what's artificial? As opposed to what? as opposed to natural, or which town in this country is natural, there are always power relations that are going to build cities, whether it's the church and the universities that built Oxford and Cambridge, finance that built the city of London, or whatever industry that built Manchester. And our question must be not to get rid of power, because you can't, but how that is distributed through the processes of planning and how ordinary people in, and communities, in quotes, can be brought into that process a lot more.
2: This is very interesting because in the last few years, people are now talking about how do we integrate planning and governance together. We've got two separate things. We've got very low electoral turnouts for local elections, a disillusionment with local politics, a disillusionment with planning, and yet somehow we have to have a vision of where we want to live and how we want to live. And I think it's interesting that people are saying, well, let's bring these things together, democracy... Consultation and planning together, and I think this is a very healthy sign.
0: Let me bring a third factor into the equation. It seems to me in your discussion of the post-war era that on the one hand we have issues of planning, people issuing top-down plans, ideas and so on from the new towns. And there's also a sense from what you, you also say that there are demographic changes going on in the era, the emergence of single-person households, for example. I wonder what kind of other social forces have provided the context within which urban planners, people thinking about changing Britain's cities in the 1950s and 1960s, had to contend with. There was something more going on to shape Britain's cities than just these top-down plans and or resistance from the bottom. What were the kind of big social forces at work at this time?
2: Well, one of the biggest, obviously, was the motor car. In the sense, you could say that British cities and planning in the 20th century have been dominated by the needs of the motorists.
0: And how has that come about and what impact has it had on British cities?
2: Well, I mean, the motor car industry is a very powerful industry and it's always had very strong links into Parliament. But also the kind of people that are planning cities often have identified themselves firstly as motorists. When we were doing the research to the book that became Towns for People, I at least interviewed at least ten chief planners in British cities, one of the first questions they asked me when I got there was, did you have any trouble parking? Their assumption was, from one middle-aged man to another, did you have trouble parking? Now, the fact is, they were planning cities that would by and largely be used by women with children, people in the firm and so on. The notion of the walkable city just disappeared off the planning agenda 50 years ago. It's only now just beginning to come back again.
0: During what other kind of forces? I mean, the motor car is a very particular technology, but there are, there are no doubt bigger things going on in post-war Britain that were shaping what happened. Absolutely.
1: I mean, just one of the ironies of the motor car is, of course, thinking back to where we began and the anti-urbanism. People's escape from the city was aided by the motor car. They all thought they were doing it to live in a, in a greener environment and this love of nature and the countryside and all the rest of it. But it is the most environmentally destructive way of building cities you could possibly imagine. And precisely those issues are now beginning ever so slightly to be on the agenda, which is great. One other thing we must mention, although of course there were loads of things going on in the the long post-war period, is the arrival of people, migrants from the Commonwealth. In part, of course, in response to desperate needs for labour in the public sector that we've been talking about. And that has changed the face of cities throughout the country. In some cities more than others, there's always a big diversity between cities, of course, but including some smaller ones, for instance, Bradford, obviously. The diversity of cities and the the spatial shape of cities, the kind of geographical organisation of cities has been dramatically changed by the influx, the concentration of people in different areas and the additional cultures that are brought to cities and the increasing of cities' hybrid nature, the very fact of their mixity, which I think has been an important part of looking back over a longer period and it's always easier to tell this emergence of a real youth culture in cities. So much of youth culture today is mixing between different ethnic uh, traditions Um, and that has happened above all in cities and I'm sure that bringing together of all those influences is precisely an example of why why urban life can be so good you meet other things you meet other people you get it together and new things emerge
0: from the open university for more information go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use